Welcome to Metaphysical Soul Speak, the podcast. I'm your host, Elena Fox. Hey guys, happy season eight. (laughs) I'm so glad to be back. I'm glad you're joining me once again for another season of Metaphysical Soul Speak the podcast. I want to start by saying happy Halloween. I'm so happy to not be seen. I'm on the radio. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But I'm here with you. You know, I'm really happy. I'm actually happier than I thought I would be starting a brand new season. (laughs) So I just wanted to say, welcome to metaphysical soul speak, the podcast. And I hope that in this moment in time, Wherever you are in this Halloween season, I hope that you're able to let go of toxic relationships. Oh my God. (laughs) Just in time for Halloween too. Yes, Indeed, I have been speaking to many people in the past weeks, months, (laughs) and it has come to my attention uh, that many of you, many of my listeners, even people that don't listen (laughs) that don't even know about the show, uh, but have contacted me randomly. Anyway, they see one of my reels on Instagram or whatever. A lot of you have contacted me because you are letting go uh, finally of toxic relationships. Now I don't mean only romantic relationships, but friendships, familial relationships that were toxic, uh, people that weren't really friends, but they pretended, um, working partnerships, business or work relationships, such as quitting jobs that just no longer serve, you know, um, Romantic relationships too, of course, obviously, of course, um, getting rid of, um, toxic oddball living situations as well. I still live in my same apartment mentioning that real quick, um, but I'm, you know, on the verge of not being here. I think by February I'll be out of here. I think by season nine, when I start season nine, I will be starting it, but probably from another city, actually. Knock on wood. That'd be good. (laughs) I hope that will be true. 
But uh, yeah, I've been um, really noticing this toxic stuff. And I wrote down something I wanted to read to you guys. It's not perfect or whatever, but there's something that I I have this uh, little note. Uh, color note is a little app I've got and I write between seasons I take little notes of what happens between the seasons if I have any really bizarre dreams or really intense revelations or wild shit that happens to me so I could share it with you guys because you guys want to hear my weird stories and know what I'm up to in between the scenes, behind the scenes, as it were. And I wrote the following. Spiritual warfare. I let go of a friend. Sinister, crazy sorcery affected my health and my mental health for the past four years years thank God I got the discernment mantle oh boy we are in for a ride this season Uh, I was not siddling siddling (laughs) there's a word you never heard before I was going to say sitting idly by, but I combined the words there. (laughs) See, you get a bonus. You get a brand new word with brand new season. Um, (laughs) I was not sitting idly by (laughs) in my six weeks time off um, eating bonbons. Wouldn't know where to find a bonbon if my life depended on it in this little tiny village where I live. (laughs) But I, I, uh, actually I spent a lot of time reading, researching, taking classes, uh, things that I could share, uh, in season eight for you. Um, so what do we have coming up this season? I am going to start telling you guys about how to fight the forces of evil in the courts of heaven. This idea came to me. um, I was looking up some book and these other books came up randomly. I'm like, that sounds weird. Sounds really weird. That sounds really interesting and weird. And it also sounds really bizarre and Christian, you know, (laughs) like, I don't know. I think this is not for me, but I just got more and more intrigued by the idea that there are courts in heaven. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's a hall of records. There's a hall of justice. Holy shit. Holy shit on a shingle guys. There's really a court system in heaven. Of course there is. It says in the Bible, God is our judge. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So we're going to go over how to fight the adversary. How to fight the cases against you, the legal cases and the illegal cases that the adversary and all his minions and all the devils and the demons 
and also just the evil people, all the things that people put on you and your family for generations. We're going to talk about how actually to break generational curses in a way that I did not know in season seven. So we're going to update some information from season seven. And what I told you back then is every bit is good, but what I'm going to tell you this season, (laughs) it's going to empower you beyond compare. I took a seven hour journey, (laughs) seven, uh, separate, uh, classes that were all kind of together on this idea of courts in heaven. And then I took, uh, several classes in obtaining mantles. So, uh, in the month of November, we're going to also talk about mantles. Um, what is a mantle? Well, we're going to talk about that too, but briefly a mantle is basically like an energy that fits you like a cloak or a cape. It's like a garment that also is spoken about in the Bible and the Quran. The courts of heaven are also mentioned in the Quran as well as the um, old Jewish books as well. This stuff is real, guys. This stuff is real in a way that I did not know before. And boy, am I doing that spiritual battle, (laughs) spiritual warfare. I'm not one to enjoy fighting or us versus them mentality, as you know. But sometimes you do have to take up your arms and go to battle. Especially when you are attacked. It even says in the Quran that, um, you know, obviously you can't kill anybody. You can't just go out and start randomly, you know, thou shalt not kill. It says, you know, (laughs) we are upholding in this book too, what we said to Moses, don't do that. You know, thou shalt not kill is still a real thing, but in the Quran, it updated it. And it said, you know, basically if somebody comes into your home and it's your enemy and they ask for your help, you must help them. But if your enemy comes into your home, for example, in the middle of the night with the pure intent of hurting your family and you, you have every right to kill them and it will not come back on you legally. It will not, basically it will not come back on you in a way in which you are responsible karmically. So yes, sometimes we must take up our armaments. (laughs) Sometimes we have to do battle, unfortunately. And boy, Oh, for two weeks, guys, for two weeks, I have been doing battle. (laughs) Uh, I laugh about it because it's over. Thank you, God. Knock on wood. It will continue to be over. But, um, yeah, something weird happened. Uh, my friend who will be moving here to be with me, um, knock on wood for that one. I, uh, we've been talking and, you know, our mutual friend who I've mentioned a few times, uh, without saying her name ever, 
ever again. I had to delete and block her because all of this strange energy was swirling about me. Um, and the more this woman contacted me, the more I started feeling bad and weird and all these negative emotions. And I don't want to go too, too deep into it because it's so, it was so freaking negative. And she contacted me, my, 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 my good friend. And she said, I think she's been casting sorcery against us. Uh, she's been casting spells and I feel that she's put energy into me. And she said, you know, she started doing these physical things where she would contact me and tell me about one of her physical ailments. And then I would start getting the symptoms of it when I felt sorry for her. And this is something I've never come across before in my 36 years of consciously studying metaphysics guys. Um, what I'm talking about is beyond narcissism. It's beyond victimhood, victim narcissism. Yeah, narcissistic personality disorder is a part of it. And this person's always had the talk right. She's acted right. She's said the right things. I've known her for over four years. And... I didn't even realize that she was toxic and that's what's bizarre. Like, I don't know her, know her. I've never met her in person, mind you. We had a mutual friend in common and then he passed away and then that's how uh, she contacted me after he passed away. I wrote his obituary and she um, found it online and contacted me and through his family that found me because they didn't know me at all. I just, I knew him as a colleague kind of, um, I barely knew him to be honest, but, um, we were becoming friends and then he died randomly and mysteriously, which I'm not going to talk about so much right now. But the thing is this person had this whole victimhood, narcissism, woe is me bullshit down to such an art that you don't realize that she's doing it until you're roped in so far and so deep that you feel so sad and so upset for her that you start to go, Oh, I'm sorry. And the minute you fucking do that, the minute you fucking do that with this bitch (laughs) is the minute you get the fucking symptoms of what she sent you pictures of. Oh yes. Holy mother of God pictures pictures of this sore that happened and that blood and that whatever the fuck that came out of her lungs. She was sending pictures like to get you in a sort of energy where she can take her sorcery energy, her witchcraft, hereditary witchcraft energy and just, uh, push it into your body. And what I discovered, I didn't even tell my friend this yet. What I discovered last night, God told me, I'm like, why the fuck would she do this to anybody? 
if she herself is suffering, why does she want others to suffer? And he said, exactly. And I'm like, what? God said, yeah, exactly. She wants other people to suffer. So she does not have to. This is her own karma from her own unhealed trauma from her childhood. And God knows where the fuck else only God knows really her higher self and her angels know if she even has an angel with her anymore. I don't even know, but it all came to a head when she contacted me and told me about, um, these little girls who were at a YMCA and this guy accidentally spilled a gallon of acid in the swimming pool and these little girls almost died they gulped in water with the acid it was like burns on the outside of their skin they were in critical condition and almost died and um, she sent me pictures of these people and got me sad about it and I looked into it and I asked the archangel of death about it and this little girl's name was on the list That was her friend's uh, daughter. So I got really upset, got really emotionally involved. And that's when she fucking got me because my energy was lowered by her energy that was already low. And she kept describing how she's crying for hours and this and that and all this bullshit to get me to go, Oh, I'm so sorry for you. And, um, because I am an empath and I do feel for people And, but what I recognized was, thank you, God, for this discernment, God showed me that it was a manipulation of my emotions, of my emotional body. And that was the way by which she could get her fucking hooks and claws into me. So I had a long conversation with God in the courts of heaven. I reversed the decision and I convinced the soul of this little girl to live Archangel Hariel, the Archangel of death came to me and showed that yes, she was on the list. And when he showed that to me, she was in critical condition. And if she did live, she was going to be in the hospital for fricking months. And through the work that the Holy spirit told me, you know, the words I was told to say, and through Jesus as the advocate, in the courts of heaven, I got all this shit reversed within four days. She was already better and off the respirator and was definitely going to live. Archangel Harriel showed me that she got off of the going to die list. I, he literally showed me as her name erased from the list. And as you know, Archangel Harriel is the current acting Archangel of death in my stead while I am here on earth. Um, cause usually that's my list. And so when I went to court for this little girl, I had a conversation and I found out she's going to have another bout in her twenties with something to do with, um, maybe a car accident or something. And she's going to have a decision to make then too, but she'll probably choose to stay again. We all have our exit points. And this is just one of her exit points, you know, and she almost exited. She was planning on exiting until I stepped in and I reversed some generational curses for her father and herself. And then I made some things. Okay. Through literally the grace of God, through my accidentally stumbling upon these series of books. 
so she chose not to exit and now she's out of the hospital and it's only been a couple weeks weird right just like wow <laughs> I mean it was like serious like this like her, like her whole face and body was burned her mouth inside her I mean everything like she was not gonna make it and four days later she was already like we're off the respirators she's gonna be fine it was like really rapidly I mean I hooked her up to the fifth dimensional healing grid I sent her Reiki I prayed and prayed and prayed I you know the courts of heaven I mean I did a lot of shit for this little girl but during that time while I was doing all that is when I started to realize that this person who I thought was my friend actually was controlling and manipulating me through my emotional body and my mental body. And I started realizing this, this is some weird shit. She put some stuff into me that I didn't know was there. And I got on the phone with my friend and we started talking about it. And she said, you know, every time I tried to heal her, I would get the symptoms of the shit she was complaining about. I'm like, Oh fuck. That was happening to me too. And I kept trying to help her and I kept feeling worse. Um, over the break guys, some really shitty things happened to me. Um, the cat went, she's okay. Knowledge Raven spells. Okay. Thank you, God. She though found a tree filled with pollen that is poisonous at least poisonous for me might be a deadly tree. And she got her whole fur completely coated in it and came home and jumped into my arms within 10 minutes. I couldn't fucking breathe. And the last words out of my mouth before I stopped being able to breathe or talk was God help me. And I literally just sat there just shaking and holding onto the counter uh, trying my best to will air to go in and out of what now felt like half of a straw worth of, um, passageway into my lungs. Tried to take my asthma inhaler. Nothing was fucking working. Took a Benadryl immediately before I couldn't swallow anymore. And God told me if I'm here next year at this time, when that tree blooms again, I will die. So I definitely have to move. Definitely as soon as possible. And then poor cat, she's been sags. Every time she goes outside and comes back in, she's getting a bath right away. <laughs> she is not thrilled with that. I mean, there are days when she walks over to the door and asks to be let outside. I'm like, I'm going to let you outside, but you have to have a bath. And she'll look at me and she'll complain and go back into the bedroom. Like, fuck that. I'm not getting a fucking bath today. I'm over that. She hates taking baths. I'm like, but I can't take a chance because I almost died because what was on your fur and she just was like okay so she's now resolving herself like okay I mean I'm, I'm rinsing the baby wipes out so they don't smell as much like the perfume that's on the baby wipes they're very mild but for a cat not so much so 
Knowledge Ravenspell has been very good getting her little baths and she's been protecting me a lot more. So it's actually resulted in the cat and I becoming closer. She's um, massaging my hips and my back and my stomach every day and she's holding my head down against my pillow with her paws and putting her arms all the way around my head and petting my face tenderly until I fall asleep every day now. And she's sleeping with me like almost the whole night now, just making sure that I'm safe because she watched me as I almost died. She could tell in my aura that, I mean, my aura was gray. I was fucking dying. And, and Harry was with me. Archangel Harry was with me. And I was like, Jesus, you know, am I on the list? And he's like, you're not on the list, but you're about to be. I'm like, oh, fuck, you know, I'm like, I need help. I'm like, God, if you want to take me out, I'm ready to go. I'm just, please take care of my cat. But, you know, um, uh, but I, I want to be with my twin flame. You know, it's what I want. And if you can just please allow us to be together and have a happy life and allow me to be here for my kids while they navigate their early adulthood, that would be great. But if you really need me in heaven, I'm, I'm ready to go. Let's go. I literally almost died three weeks ago. But my friend and I started talking about it and I'm like, okay, so this person, um, had been bandying about the word jealousy. I'm jealous of you. I'm jealous of your relationship with, you know, our other mutual friend. And she was my friend first. And now you guys are better friends than you and I ever were. And that she and I were ever were. And she and I were friends first. And I'm just so jealous, you know, and she kept mentioning this shit to me. She mentioned it to me. And then like a week later, she mentioned it to me. And then the week after that, she mentioned it three fucking times in a week that she's jealous. And I finally contacted my other friend. I said, I don't like talking about other people or whatever, but she keeps saying this and it's just fucking weird as hell. And I wanted to know uh, if she ever mentioned this to you. And she said, Oh God, dozens of times for years. She's mentioned how jealous. Cause she was friends with you first friends with me first. Now you guys are friends and now I'm so jealous. And then, and then she goes into this whole toxic shit of, I never should have said that word. I feel just so bad. I just don't know. And I said, why were you jealous? You know? And I asked her point blank, you know, you keep bringing it up and then apologizing for it and then backing off of this conversation. No, you keep bringing it up. That means you want to fucking talk about it. We're going to talk now because I'm tired of hearing about it. Let's clear the air. That's who I am. I'm straightforward. I'm direct. I want to know what's going on. So she told me, well, back when you guys first talked, I told her that you were moving and you're busy. And because you're so busy that you wouldn't get back to her for weeks because you didn't get back to me for two weeks. And I'm like, okay. So back when I was worried about a crazy mob boss that threatened my child and me, um, (laughs) And some other things that happened, which, you know, I know I was made aware of, but God showed me a horrible crime that he had committed against a child. And then we found him in our new apartment building and we think he was doing something horrible to another child. I'm not going to, I mean, you could use your imagination. It is as bad as you think and worse, but please don't imagine it. I'm just saying that there was some horrible, horrible, horrible fucking things happening. So I was, I did not know you enough to even express what was happening. 
we were going to be at that time, I thought professional colleagues. And the third thing is basically, it's none of your fucking business. Why didn't get back to you right away? All I could tell you was I'm trying to get settled into my new apartment and I have other things going on. That's it. That's, I mean, and that should have been enough. I don't need to fucking explain myself to anybody ever. And she's like, Oh, you don't need to explain yourself to me. I'm like, yes, but you keep banding about this word of I'm so jealous. Cause blah, blah, blah. You know, and you keep doing this toxic shit. She's like, I've never once said that. I'm like, you said it three times in this conversation in the past week. You've mentioned it five times in the past month. You've mentioned dozens of times to our mutual friend. Don't lie. We've got the proof. And she turned that and I said, I just wanted to clear the air that when I didn't get back to you for two weeks, there was some really serious, serious shit that where we thought someone might be after us. We weren't sure. Thank you, God. We were safe and everything was fine and we're fine now and everything's good. But back then we were a little scared and had a little bit more on our minds than getting back to people on fucking Facebook messenger. So sorry to say social media ain't that big of a deal to me when possibly my son's life is in danger. Right? So I could not tell you back then because I did not know you well enough, but I'm telling you now, not that I owe you anything. I don't owe you an explanation, but the reason I'm telling you now is so that you can understand that my life has a lot more layers to it than my just being frivolous and busy and gain back to somebody else. I don't know quickly to upset you. My life and the way I live, it has nothing to do with your emotions or your reaction to my actions. You know, I'm just out here living my life, doing my thing. And if you had this reaction, you should have told me immediately, but we were not good enough friends. We'd only known each other a couple months. I didn't even know you all that well. So what, what's it to you? If I got back to you immediately or not, it made no damn sense to me. Maybe because I'm a Virgo and I'm cold hearted sometimes. I don't know. Anyway, there's this crazy conversation. Anyway, I just said, look, this is what was happening. This is why I didn't get back to you. We were not friends. We were somewhat kind of maybe potentially going to be colleagues, but nothing else. I did not know you except on a professional level. And then the weird shit going on in my private life had nothing to do with you wasn't your business and I did not owe you anything. And the fact that I got back to somebody who wrote me on my author page and she was just talking about super surface stuff and I got back to her right away and she said what her birthday was. So we had a few things in common and I thought that she might make a good guest for my show and I was going to also be colleagues with her as well. And yeah, I did get back to her right away because the timing on her behalf was impeccable. The timing on your behalf just was unfortunately not so much. It was only to do with timing and what was going on in my life had nothing to do with you personally, even though for over four fucking years, you've taken it personally. And at every turn, you're mentioning it to my mutual friend, our mutual friend, and making it a big deal, right? So I tried to explain it to her in a nice way. And this hoe turned this into a four hour conversation. And I was just like, I'm done with her. I'm done. What the hell's going on? 
I didn't realize that was toxic. Okay. I'm still at the level of, but she's just not understanding. She's an old lady. She's like, she's seriously like in her like late sixties. I'm like, no, she's an older lady. She's not quite with it. She's got all these health issues. I was still like feeling sorry for her. Blah, black, black, blackity black. It was so gross. Energetically toxic as fuck. So then this amazing uh, meme came across <laughs> my perusal on Instagram and it said people that turn a five minute conversation into a whole afternoon shit show are toxic as fuck. And I was like, Oh my God, I felt like I could breathe again. I thought I was going down the fucking rabbit hole with this bitch. Like what is wrong with her that she can't understand? Oh, she is committed to misunderstanding me because she's committed to her toxic activities. She is committed to all this negative shit. She is committed to her victimhood. She is committed to remaining unhealed from her trauma on purpose. I mean, I was seeing all of her patterns. I was like, you know, this is your pattern, but a boom, this is your pattern, but a being, I could see this thing over here. You got to heal that over there. You got to forgive yourself. You got to forgive your mom. You got to forgive that. You got to forgive. You got to, Oh, she ain't going to do shit. Oh, that's when I realized she's toxic. She toxic. I had some of my friends say that. Oh, she toxic. Don't worry about her. Don't don't even play with her no more. <laughs> Taking my toys and going home. We ain't playing this game no more. <laughs> but that's I mean, it's weird when you have a friend that you believe is your friend and then you realize later that they're just this toxic person. And when you don't really know them well enough to think that they're toxic, you just think, well, I feel sorry for them because they're this and they're that victim. Narcissism is a serious thing, but it got worse because I called my friend and she's like, yeah, I kept getting all the diseases that she kept listing. I kept getting these weird symptoms. She said one day she said to me, I'm going to ask you something really serious and weird. Have your arms recently um, become like bat wings have you lost your, have the, have your arms, upper arms become flabby and you've lost your muscle tone recently. I'm like, Oh my fucking God. Yes. She said, so have I, that is a curse somebody put against us. And I started realizing that you have these curses as well. And she's like, do you have this one? Do you have that one? You know, do you have problems with your skin? And I'm like, yeah, I've got weird sores and legion lees, lesions in certain places. I even had like a wild rash that smelled really bad out of nowhere on my skin and like a big, huge, like, um, like I've never had anything like this in my life guys. And I mean, I don't shower in the polluted water in the ice cold polluted water in this apartment, but I do bathe. Like I, I have like washcloths that I use with soap and water and you know, I'm cleaning my body. I'm just not always in that heavy polluted water. And, um, so I'm like, yeah, I just got this. I just got rid of this horrible. It was like a, it like came up overnight, this horrible rash all over my whole chest 
It had a horrible smell to it and it felt toxic. And she said, yeah, she had that. I'm like, Oh my fucking God. She made me feel sorry for a few days ago. And then a few days later, she's like, Oh, she had this thing in her throat. I'm like, yeah, I've been having a thing in my throat. Oh my God. I had a thing in my throat too. Oh my God. Even, um, in the past couple days, I've had a trouble swallowing water and she's been describing how she had a trouble swallowing water. I'm like, Oh, every time I felt sorry for her, this is what God showed me is that this toxic hoe <laughs> and I'm going to call her that now. Now I'm not slut shaming her it has nothing to do with her sexuality, but I'm so angry at this. Um, I mean, I sent this shit back and God said, do it 30 million times, 30 million. We ain't playing anymore. She's like, you know, God is like, you are working for me. You are a chosen one for me. And this person's doing it on purpose. And I'm like, Oh my God. Sometimes guys, you cannot have compassion for people that harm you. You can feel sorry for them, feel bad for them, but that can also be a way for them to get into your emotions into your mentality. You'll let your defenses and your guard down. And that's when they get you. I'm not saying everyone's like that, but there are certain people. So I ask God, please take away all of what this person gave me, what you put into my body. So I did this with my friend and, and God said, it's going to take about 24 to 48 hours. 72 hours later, I'm still Archangel Michael's still cutting cords and ties and hooks. And the angels are still pulling stuff out of my body. I'm like, what the fuck? Seven days it took for all of the stuff that she had put in me to take all of it out. The curse word she said over me, the bad things that she said over my name. She like trying to make my body um, fat and flabby and no, um, unable to breathe. And then I, I heard her say, I heard some of the shit she was saying that she wanted me to be um, so ugly that my twin flame could not love me and to block me from him so that I would have to be so broken. I would have to come to her so she could control me in person in her own home. And she did say that she wanted me to live in her basement. This is how fucking toxic this shit became. And my friend, I I called her yesterday or two days ago. And I said, uh, did she ever tell you now that your marriage is over that she wants you to come live with her in her basement? so she could take care of you. And she said, Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, she said that shit to me too. (laughs) Beware of people offering charitable, uh, things. Just beware of that. I want you guys to be aware of that on this crazy Halloween season. (laughs) I want you to be aware that sometimes when they're acting all nicety, nice, 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 they're not, not at all. She's a sorcerer. She's a witch. And what I found out is she has a Ouija board that's from the 1800s from her great, great, great grandparents. And it was used in league with the devil and it was used for the forces of evil to come forth 
and she does have portals opening in her home to hell and she rather enjoys that dark dark bullshit energy the separation from herself and God and separation from love itself and there were things that she did, you know, talking shit about her husband right in front of him, things that I knew were making him feel bad, and then going, I don't know why he doesn't want me. It's like, um, I do. <laughs> it doesn't take a fucking rocket scientist to know when you talk shit about somebody, they're not going to be interested in you, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Gee, I can't wait to get with that after she talked bad about me for like the last four years. Like, what the hell? Oh my God. So I've been dealing with this toxic, toxic person and now it is no longer. Um, it took seven days to get rid of the curses and the spells and reverse all that fucking shit, putting it back on her. I mean, I had angels, not just one or two, but angels working around the clock. And I said, God, I'm still feeling there's something. And God sent me cherubim and seraphim. This is not normal. This is not available to humans. So you don't even bother asking. The angels do work for humans, but sometimes the archangels, we need a little bit more. And so they were literally going by my, through my body, molecule by fucking molecule, getting rid of the psychic debris from this hoe. And it took four fucking days. It's been four fucking days since she's, since every cell in my body has been purified of her psychic negativity. Like it takes dedication to put this kind of, this amount of stuff, 11 whole days. I mean, it takes dedication of absolute hatred of a person the whole time she's telling me that she loves me and it never felt genuine to me. It always felt like bullshit to me forced and weird. I started saying it back just out of politeness, but I never felt it. I was just like, well, whatever. I mean, you know, I feel love for everybody on the planet, even, you know, the devil and his minions. I feel love for everybody because you know, love your enemy as yourself. Right. But on a impersonal level, I never felt love for her on a personal level because I never made a personal connection with her because She's always been standoffish by showing me all the victimhood that she's living through. Oh, my toe hurts. Oh, look at my ingrown toenail. Oh, here's an up close picture of that. Oh, here's an x-ray of my toe. This is what the doctor said about my toe. I mean, that's, that's the kind of bullshit for four fucking years. Okay. Every week for four fucking years. It's like, okay, grandma, I don't want to hear about your fucking toe anymore. Like, God damn it. It's like fucking hell, man. But God literally said 30 million times 30 million, send that shit back to her. She's, I didn't even notice it guys. And I'm good. I'm an energy shaman and I can discern stuff. And I still didn't see that one. I was blindsided by it, but no more. And I'm bringing it up. Some people will just talk about their bullshit just because they're bored they can't believe bad things are happening to them. So they keep thinking about the bad things. The more bad things happen. Then they talk about that again and they're negative. My grandma was a really negative person about her. I mean, it, my mom said, fuck for fuck's sake. Don't ask her ever if she's how she's doing. And I'll be like, Oh, Hey grandma, how are you doing? Ah, fuck in my mind. I'm like, 
fuck? Like, I can hear my mom in the background cringing. Like, why the fuck did she ask her that? Oh, 20 minutes of negativity follows that question every fucking time. (laughs) But my grandma wasn't a sorcerer and she never wished anything on me. She didn't want me to feel sorry for her. She was just genuinely concerned and worried about herself. And she didn't feel um, safe and loved and protected as she had before when my grandpa was still alive. And I think she was genuinely scared and it was her way of, you know, so people talk about this kind of negative shit, um, for many different reasons. I'm telling it to you guys so that you can understand how this manipulative sorcery shit can work sometimes through the victimhood narcissism, you know, the victim narcissist. You know, and and this person's only the second victim narcissist I've ever met. And the first one, she's toxic as fuck, man. She'll like, like, I haven't talked to her in years. And the last time I talked to her was like maybe six months ago. And she was asking me to set up a hotel room for her in Oregon. And she's going to give me this guy's credit card number that I'm supposed to use I don't know this guy. Did he even give permission? Did she steal it? Is she lying? I don't know. I'm like, I'm not going to fucking do that. Well, I don't have the money, but I could pay you. You're going to pay me $50 to make phone calls and make something for you when like what? Be a fucking adult, dude. You're in your like late forties. You've gotten a hotel room for yourself before. You know, oh, I don't like that one because of the noise. I don't like that one because of da, da, da. like, you know, a week and a half, she wanted me to try to find a hotel room for every day. Oh, please, please. I'm so scared. Da, 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 da. Make the fucking phone call yourself. Wear a fucking earplug, you know, leave me alone. Like I, I live on a different fucking continent than you do. You know, like you're making me call all these places to help you when, you know, So I just, what I did, you know, she kept asking and I wasn't doing it. I'm like, look, I'm going to give you a list of real estate agents that also help people with leases and apartments. And this one over here will help you with uh, temporary vacation homes as well. So these are the people you call. They're the ones with all the information about the local real estate market in Oregon since I live in Ecuador, you know, like leave me the fuck alone. In other words, I should have, I don't think I even deleted and blocked her. I might've actually finally deleted and blocked her. But, um, if I ever hear from her again, I just will. Cause I'm fucking tired of that shit too. I got to tell you though, when I deleted and blocked this woman, I felt like there had been a demon sitting on my chest and it just flew away. Like oh, I could breathe again. I could sing again, you know, I could feel delightful again. And then she contacted me while I was talking to my friend about it. And I just had this pallor, this horrible feeling come over me again. And she said, delete and block that bitch again. She's like, I just did. And she said, Oh my God, the energy just like, (gasps) (laughs) just like the energy highway opened up. Like my friend was going on her walk and on her playlist, there'd been kind of a sad song when she was feeling sad because this woman had put into her suicidal tendencies and thoughts. Like she, she had her own and she put it through. And what God had shown me is that 
every time she played the victim and got us in the sad, sad, sad state of mind, she would put that thing into us. And then she would pull back from us our positivity, our innocent energy, our purity, our vibrancy, our youth and our good energy. She was exchanging her negativity for our positivity and stealing our youth. That's why my friends like, uh, do you have bat wings out of nowhere? I'm like, yeah, what the fuck happened to my arms? Like in the past week only, like I am very muscular and suddenly I had no muscles. I'm like, I don't know what the hell's going on. I think I need to eat more meat or something. She's like, no, it's a curse. Holy shit. It's a curse. I started looking gray. I started looking really sickly. I mean, for a while, my toenails were fucking purple. Like I was losing oxygen in my body. And I didn't know what the fuck was happening. That's how bad this got. So anyway, I feel great now because I got rid of her. I got rid of her energy. 11 days later, I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> I have a lot more energy. I'm still feeling pretty pale. I need to go out in the sunshine and I'm going to go to the pharmacy this week. Knock on wood. I'll be able to make it over there and grab some vitamin D, <laughs> vitamin D. <laughs> my, uh, my, uh, oldest kid called me and said, the doctor prescribed 20 minutes of sunshine a day. I'm like, okay, you live in California. She's like, mom, it ain't going to fucking happen. <laughs> she said, you know how stupid I feel that I had to go all the way over to the pharmacy to get vitamin D that was prescribed like medical grade vitamin D because I'm unwilling to stand in the sun for 20 minutes a day. I'm like, but you go out all the time. She's like, yeah, but I'm always like under the trees. She's like, you've seen how pale I am. I'm like, I know we're so pale. We're like a piece of paper, pale almost. And she's like, yeah, I just, it ain't going to fucking happen. I'm just going to take the vitamin D pill once a week. That's what he said to do. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do the same. <laughs> I'm going to do the same. Anyway, I wanted to say uh, thank you for those of you that did share your journeys with me over the past six weeks of getting rid of all the toxic people in your life and the toxic situations, circumstances, events, and relationships, friendships that weren't really friends, uh, you know, um, if you are going through this. It's going around. Everyone's going through it. It's really a trip. It's really a trip. And I wanted to say thank you for those of you who did share your journeys with me. And I'm telling you because it can blindside you. And when you do decide to block and delete that person and you do not ever owe them or anybody an explanation. But when that toxicity, when it starts to take a toll on your health, on your mental health, on your emotional health, it might just be time, you know, and pray about it. You know, God gave me the mantle of discernment recently. And that's when I started to see clearly what was happening with this person. She, when she wrote me, I don't know what happened. What did I do? I'm so sorry. I love you. Da, da, da. I did nothing but love you. I'm like, yeah, nothing but love me. My eye 11 years later, I mean, 11 years, it felt like years, 11 days later, the angels are still detoxing my system cell by cell. 
atom by fucking atom from the shit she gave me. It's fucking trippy. I'm like, yeah, I I don't ever want to play with her tea set again. <laughs> I'm taking my dolly and I'm going home. We're no longer playing. <laughs> I'm not playing anymore. God's not playing anymore. God said 30 million times 30 million. Send it back to them. I, I sent her shit back in the courts of heaven. I sent it back through the condom method. I sent it back through all the ways I've been talking to you guys about for years. Um, yeah, so spiritual warfare. Um, I mean, I don't go out and do battle. Um, in general, I don't complain about this stuff. Normally I just, I want you guys to be aware, you know, and it might be the people you'd least suspect. You know, I had admired this person because of her professionalism and who she was in the UFO community and how we had a connection, but I will never fucking talk to her again. I don't care. I'm over it. I'm over her. And her bullshit. <laughs> and the horse she rode in on. <laughs> anyway, I, I hope this uh, little toxic talk helped to see how sinister some of the stuff can be. But also, I hope it's empowered and emboldened you to leave the situations that you need to. And the situations that you already have left, I hope it empowers you to stay away from those situations. Better is coming. God showed me my better is coming. My friendships, my beautiful twin is on his way to me. Um, better is coming. Very much. I look forward to the season and gain into more of the crazy things that happened to me during the break. They were all mostly pretty good, except for the thing I just told you, (laughs) but I'm, I'm going to teach you some cool things this season. I'm excited about it. I want to go now to spaceweather.com though, for Halloween guys, we are in a solar wind, 493.6 kilometers per second solar wind which is pretty cool. Mars has gone retrograde. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Uh, (laughs) When it goes direct will be when Mercury goes retrograde. Ah, (laughs) it's been a lot of hurry up and wait. (laughs) This, this uh, year, hasn't it? It's been a crazy year. Uh, But anyway, there's sunspots. They have stable magnetic fields on the sun. They pose very little threat for strong solar flares. Thank God. You know, so it's not that bad. The Ulu neutron counts are elevated right now. In the past 48 hours, they've gone up by 0.3%. We're now at 3.3%. There's an angel number. Woo, starting off the angel numbers already. 33, there it is. (laughs) Uh, So we are inside a solar wind stream at the moment. And it's um, good. I feel good about it. There's a beautiful... Yesterday was a beautiful sun angel. I saw it and now I see a happy face. The cheerful, beautiful, um, looks like a face of a flower mixed with like a lion coming out of the sun. You could go look on spaceweather.com at the picture of the sun. It's actually quite beautiful. I actually like it. (laughs) There's a beautiful energy flowing our way. Just accept it and know that your angels are with you. God is with you. I'm always praying for you. 
and just accept that high vibrational energy as we ascend evermore, little by little, poco y poco. (laughs) Uh, We're just getting a little bit better every day, just a little bit, and that's all we need to do. Right now, uh, the NASA's All Sky Cameras and All Sky Fireball Network have reported of the United States 39 fireballs. 20 were sporadic, 17 were Southern Taurids, 2 were Orionids, there's that number 17, I keep getting 7 and 17 um, all day long, and 11, oh, so many 7s and 17s, the whole break, by the way. Uh, Schumann Resonance today, uh, according to DisclosureNews.it, coming out of Italy, was 5 like really no big deal. Not a whole lot going on <laughs> with the Schumann resonance. Normally it's 7.83 Hertz, but it's actually below normal. Uh, according to the disclosure news website. Now we're going to go to the heart math Institute found at heartmath.org, and not a lot going on there too. I mean, a little bit more obviously than five, <laughs> but, uh, coming from uh, Friday, October 28th at the 23rd hour of the day, practically Saturday, this is where we were at. Uh, Let's see here. Well, I haven't done this in a while. I got to see where are we at? Okay. California was at 80 Hertz frequency. Hopoof, Saudi Arabia, as well as Halului, South Africa, were both at zero Hertz frequency. Lithuania and Alberta, Canada were both at 148 Hertz frequency. It's worth that they're both at 148. That might be an angel number for some of you. If you keep hearing a number over and over, regardless of that number, it doesn't have to be like, you know, 222, 111. It could be 148. And if you keep hearing it again and again, baby, that could be an angel number for you. Go check it out on uh, an angel numbers app or in an angel numbers book because you might just find a special message for yourself. Anyway, last but not least, we've got Northland, New Zealand, and they were at 207 hertz frequency. All right, so for Halloween, I have decided I'm going to try to read The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. I've never read this before. I don't think I've read this whole thing ever before. I've heard it, you know, like in storybooks and stuff, but I've wanted to read this for a while. So I'm going to do this for Halloween. (laughs) Nice spooky story. And, um, well, there you go. Uh, anyway, I love you guys. I'm glad you're here with me. I'm going to take a quick little break, a little itty bitty musical, musical ditty, musical. What? See, there's another word I just made up right now. Makes no sense, but okay. (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to be right back after that. And then we're going to get into... The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. And I found it on Gutenberg.org, so it is within the public domain. Gonna get right to that right after this. Happy Halloween, guys. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving Found among the papers of the late Diedrich Knickerbocker A pleasing land of drowsy head it was 
of dreams that wave before the half-shut eye, and of gay castles in the clouds that pass, forever flushing round a summer sky. Castle of Indolence In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson, at that broad expansion of the river denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators the Tapan Zee, and where they always prudently shortened sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed. There lies a small market town or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Terrytown. This name was given, we are told, in former days by the good housewives of the adjacent county from the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, but merely advert to it for the sake of being precise and authentic. Not far from this village, perhaps, about two miles, there is a little valley or rather lap of land among the high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook glides through it with just murmur enough to lull one to repose and the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquility. I recollect that when a stripling, my first exploit in squirrel shooting, was in a grove of tall walnut trees that shades one side of the valley, I had wandered into it at noontime, when all nature is peculiarly quiet, and was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the Sabbath stillness around and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. If ever I should wish for a retreat whither I might steal from the world and its distractions and dream quietly away at the remnant of a troubled life, I know of none more promising than this little valley. From the listless repose of this place and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow, and its rustic lads are called Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout all the neighboring country. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land and to pervade the very atmosphere. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Maastricht 
master Hendrick Hudson. Certain it is, the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country. And the nightmare, with her whole ninefold, seems to make it the favorite scene of her gambles. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who is ever and anon seen by the country folk, hurrying along in the gloom of night, as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at times to the adjacent roads, and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain of the most authentic historians of those parts who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this specter allege that the body of the trooper, having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth to the scene of battle in nightly quest of his head and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow like a midnight blast is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. Such is the general purport of this legendary superstition, which has furnished materials for many a wild story in that region of shadows. And the specter is known at all the country firesides by the name of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. It is remarkable that the visionary propensity I have mentioned is not confined to the native inhabitants of the valley, but is unconsciously imbibed by everyone who resides there for a time. However wide awake they may have been before they entered that sleepy region, they are sure in a little time to inhale the witching influence of the air,
and begin to grow imaginative, to dream dreams and see apparitions. I mention this peaceful spot with all possible laud, for it is in such little retired Dutch valleys, found here and there embosomed in the great state of New York, that population, manners, and customs remain fixed, while the great torrent of migration and improvement, which is making such incessant changes in other parts of this restless country, sweeps by them unobserved. They are like those little nooks of still water which border a rapid stream where we may see the straw and bubble riding quietly at anchor or slowly revolving in their mimic harbor, undisturbed by the rush of the passing current. Though many years have elapsed since I trod the drowsy shades of Sleepy Hollow, yet I question whether I should still not find the same trees and the same families vegetating in its sheltered bosom. In this by-place of nature there abode in a remote period of American history, that is to say, some thirty years since, a worthy white of the name of Ichabod Crane, who sojourned, or as he expressed it, tarried in Sleepy Hollow for the purpose of instructing the children of the vicinity. He was a native of Connecticut, a state which supplies the Union with pioneers for the mind, as well as for the forest, and sends forth yearly in its legions the frontier woodsmen and country schoolmasters. The cognomen of Crane was not inapplicable to his person. He was tall, but exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might have served for shovels. <laughs> in his whole frame most loosely hung together his head was small and flat at top with huge ears large green glassy eyes and a long snipe nose so that it looked like a weathercock perched upon his spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day, with his clothes bagging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken him for the genius of famine descending upon the earth, or some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. His schoolhouse was a low building of one large room rudely constructed of logs, the windows partly glazed and partly patched with leaves of old copy books. It was most ingeniously secured by, at the vacant hours by a wife twisted in the handle of a door and stakes set against the window shutters, so that, though a thief might get in with perfect ease, 
he would find some embarrassment in getting out, an idea most probably borrowed by the architect, Joost van Houten, from the mystery of an eel pot. The schoolhouse stood in a rather lonely but pleasant situation just at the foot of a woody hill with a brook running close by and a formidable birch tree growing at one end of it. From hence the low murmur of his pupils' voices conning over their lessons might be heard in a drowsy summer's day like the hum of a beehive, interrupted now and then by the authoritative voice of the master in the tone of menace or command or peradventure by the appalling sound of the birch as he urged some tardy loiterer along the flowery path of knowledge. Truth to say, he was a conscientious man and ever bore in mind the golden maxim, spare the rod and spoil the child. Ichabod Crane's scholars certainly were not spoiled. I would not have it imagined, however, that he was one of those cruel potentates of the school who joy in the smart of their subjects. On the contrary, he administered justice with discrimination rather than severity, taking the burden off the backs of the weak and laying it on those of the strong. Your mere puny stripling that winced at the least flourish of the rod was passed by with indulgence, but the claims of justice were satisfied by inflicting a double portion on some little tough or wrong-headed broad-skirted Dutch urchin who sulked and swelled and grew dogged and sullen beneath the birch. All this he called doing his duty by their parents. And he never inflicted a chastisement without following it by the assurance so consolatory to the smarting urchin that he would remember it and thank him for it the longest day he had to live. When school hours were over, he was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys and on holiday afternoons would convoy some of the smaller ones home who happened to have pretty sisters or good housewives for mothers, noted for the comforts of the cupboard. Indeed, it behooved him to keep on good terms with his pupils. The revenue arising from his school was small, and would have been scarcely sufficient to furnish him with daily bread, for he was a huge feeder, and though lank, he had the dilating powers of an anaconda. But to help out his maintenance, he was, according to country custom, in those parts, boarded and lodged at the houses of the farmers whose children he instructed. With these, he lived successively a week at a time, thus going the rounds of the neighborhood with all his worldly effects tied up in a cotton handkerchief. That all this might not be too onerous on the purses of his rustic patrons who are apt to consider the cost of schooling a grievous burden and schoolmasters as mere drones, he had various ways of rendering himself both useful and agreeable. 
He assisted the farmers occasionally in the lighter labors of their farms, helped to make hay, mend the fences, took the horses to water, drove the cows from pasture, and cut wood for the winter fire. He laid aside, too, all the dominant dignity and absolute sway with which he lorded it in his little empire, the school, and became wonderfully gentle and ingratiating. He found favor in the eyes of the mothers by petting the children, particularly the youngest, and like the lion bold, which Willem so magnanimously the lamb did hold. He would sit with the child on one knee and rock a cradle with his foot for whole hours together. In addition to his other vocations, he was the singing master of the neighborhood and picked up many bright shillings by instructing the young folks in psalmody. It was a matter of no little vanity to him on Sundays to take his station in front of the church gallery with a band of chosen singers where, in his own mind, he completely carried away the palm from the person. Certain it is... His voice resounded far above all the rest of the congregation, and there are peculiar quavers still to be heard in that church, and which may even be heard half a mile off, (laughs) quite to the opposite side of the mill pond on a still Sunday morning, which are said to be legitimately descended from the nose of Ichabod Crane. Thus, by divers little makeshifts and that ingenious way, which is commonly denominated by hook and by crook, the worthy pedagogue got on it tolerably enough and was thought by all who understood nothing of the labor of headwork to have a wonderfully easy life of it. The schoolmaster is generally a man of some importance in the female circle of a rural neighborhood, being considered a kind of idle gentleman-like personage of vastly superior taste and accomplishments to the rough country swains and indeed inferior to in learning only to the parson his appearance therefore is apt to occasion some little stir at the tea table of a farmhouse and the addition of a supernumerary dish of cakes or sweetmeats or peradventure the parade of a silver teapot our man of letters therefore was peculiarly happy in the smiles of all the country damsels how he would figure among them in the churchyard between services on sundays gathering grapes for them from the wild vines that overran the surrounding trees reciting for their amusement all the epitaphs on the tombstones or sauntering with the whole bevy of them along the banks of the adjacent mill pond while the more bashful country bumpkins hung sheepishly back envying his superior elegance and address. From his half-itinerant life also he was a kind of traveling gazette carrying the whole budget of local gossip from house to house so that his appearance was always greeted with satisfaction. He was moreover esteemed by the women as a man of great erudition, for he had read several books quite through, and was a perfect master of Cotton Mather's 
history of New England witchcraft, which, by the way, he most firmly and potently believed. He was, in fact, an odd mixture of small shrewdness and simple credulity. His appetite for the marvelous and his powers of digesting it were equally extraordinary. And both had been increased by his residence in this spellbound region. No tale was too gross or monstrous for his capacious swallow. It was often his delight, after his school was dismissed in the afternoon, to stretch himself on the rich bed of clover bordering the little brook that whimpered by his schoolhouse, and there con over old Mather's direful tales until the gathering dusk of evening made the printed page a mere mist before his eyes. Then, as he wended his way by swamp and stream and awful woodland to the farmhouse where he happened to be quartered, every sound of nature at that witching hour fluttered his excited imagination. The moan of the whip or will from the hillside, the boating cry of the tree toad, that harbinger of storm, the dreary hooting, of the screech owl or the sudden rustling in the thicket of birds frightened from their roost. The fireflies too, which sparked most vividly in the darkest places now and then startled him as one of the uncommon brightness would stream across his path. And if by chance a huge blockhead of a beetle came winging his blundering flight against him, The poor varlet was ready to give up the ghost (laughs) with the idea that he was struck with a witch's token. His only resource on such occasions, either to drown thought or drive away evil spirits, was to sing psalm tunes and the good people of Sleepy Hollow, as they sat by their doors of an evening, were often filled with awe at hearing his nasal melody in linked sweetness long drawn out, floating from the distant hill or along the dusky road. Another of his sources of fearful pleasure was to pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives as they sat spinning by the fire with a row of apples roasting and spluttering along the hearth and listened to their marvelous tales of ghosts and goblins and haunted fields and haunted brooks, and haunted bridges, and haunted houses, and particularly of the headless horseman, or galloping Hessian of the hollow, as they sometimes called him. He would delight them equally by his anecdotes of witchcraft, and of the direful omens and portentous sights and sounds in the air which prevailed in the earlier times of Connecticut and would frighten them woefully with speculations upon comets and shooting stars and with the alarming fact that the world did absolutely turn round and that they were half the time topsy-turvy. But if there was a pleasure in all this while snugly cuddling in the chimney corner of a chamber that was all of a ruddy glow from the crackling wood fire and where, of course, no specter dared show its face, it was dearly purchased by the terrors 
of his subsequent walk homewards. What fearful shapes and shadows beset his path amidst the dim and ghastly glare of a snowy night. With what wistful look did he eye every trembling ray of light streaming across the waste fields from some distant window. How often was he appalled by some shrub covered with snow which like a sheeted specter beset his very path. How often did he shrink with a curdling awe at the sound of his own steps at the frosty crust beneath his feet and dread to look over his shoulder lest he should behold some uncouth being tramping close behind him. And how often was he thrown into complete dismay by some rushing blast howling among the trees and the idea that it was the galloping Hessian on one of his nightly scourings. All these, however, were mere terrors of the night, phantoms of the mind that walk in darkness. And though he had seen many specters in his time and been more than once beset by Satan in divers shapes, (laughs) in his lonely perambulations, yet daylight put an end to all these evils and he would have passed a pleasant life of it in despite of the devil and all his works. If his path had not been crossed by a being that causes more perplexity to mortal man than ghosts, goblins, and the whole race of witches put together. And that was a woman among the musical disciples who assembled one evening in each week to receive his instructions in psalmody was Katrina Van Tassel, the daughter and only child of a substantial Dutch farmer. She was a blooming lass of fresh 18, plump as a partridge, ripe and melting and rosy-cheeked as one of her father's peaches, and universally famed, not merely for her beauty, but her vast expectations. She was withal a little of a coquette, as might be perceived even in her dress, which was a mixture of ancient and modern fashions, as most suited to set off her charms. She wore the ornaments of pure yellow gold, which her great-great-grandmother had brought over from Saardam, the tempting stomacher of the olden time, and withal a provokingly short petticoat to display the prettiest foot and ankle in the country around. Ichabod Crane had a soft and foolish heart towards the sex, and it is not to be wondered at that so tempting a morsel soon found flavor in his eyes. (laughs) More especially after he had visited her in her paternal mansion, old Baltus Van Tassel, was a perfect picture of a thriving, contented, liberal-hearted farmer. He seldom, it is true, sent either his eyes or his thoughts beyond the boundaries of his own farm, but within those, everything was snug, happy, and well-conditioned. He was satisfied with his wealth, but not proud of it, and piqued himself upon the hearty abundance rather than the style in which he lived, His stronghold was situated on the banks of the Hudson, 
in one of those green, sheltered, fertile nooks in which the Dutch farmers are so fond of nestling. A great elm tree, its broad branches over it, at the foot of which bubbled up a spring of the softest and sweetest water in a little well formed of a barrel, and then stole sparkling away through the grass to a neighboring brook that babbled along among our alders and dwarf willows. Hard by the farmhouse was a vast barn that might have served for a church, every window and crevice of which seemed bursting forth with the treasures of the farm. The flail was busily resounding within it from morning to night. Swallows and martins skimmed twittering upon the eaves and rows of pigeons, some with one eye turned up as if watching the weather, some with their heads under their wings or buried in their bosoms, and others swelling and cooing and bowing about their dames, were enjoying the sunshine on the roof. Sleek, unwieldy porkers were grunting in the repose and abundance of their pens, from whence sallied forth now and then troops of sucking pigs, as if to snuff the air. A stately squadron of snowy geese were riding in an adjoining pond, convoying whole fleets of ducks. Regiments of turkeys were gobbling through the farmyard and guinea fowls fretting about it, like ill-tempered housewives with their peevish, discontented cry. Before the barn door strutted the gallant cock, that pattern of a husband, a warrior and a fine gentleman, clapping his burnished wings and crowing, in the pride and gladness of his heart, sometimes tearing up the earth with its feet, and then generously calling his ever-hungry family of wives and children to enjoy the rich morsel which he had discovered. The pedagogue's mouth watered as he looked upon this sumptuous promise of luxurious winter fare. In his devouring mind's eye, he pictured to himself every roasting pig running about with a pudding in his belly and an apple in his mouth. The pigeons were snugly put to bed in a comfortable pie (laughs) and tucked in with a coverlet of crust. The geese were swimming in their own gravy and the ducks pairing cozily in dishes like snug married couples (laughs) with a decent competency of onion sauce. In the porkers, he saw carved out the future sleek side of bacon and juicy relishing ham, not a turkey, but he beheld daintily trussed up with its gizzard under its wing and peradventure a necklace of savory sausages. And even bright Chanticleer himself lay sprawling on his back in a side dish with uplifted claws as if craving that quarter which his chivalrous spirit disdained to ask while living. As the enraptured Ichabod fancied all this, and as he rolled his great green eyes over the fat meadowlands, the rich fields of wheat, of rye, of buckwheat, and Indian corn, and the orchards burdened with ruddy fruit, which surrounded the warm tenement of Van Tassel, his heart yearned after the damsel who was to inherit these domains, and his imagination expanded with the idea how they might be readily turned into cash and the money invested in immense tracts of wild land and shingle palaces in the wilderness. 
Nay, his busy fancy already realized his hopes and presented to him the blooming Katrina with the whole family of children mounted on the top of a wagon loaded with household trumpery with pots and kettles dangling beneath and he beheld himself bestriding a pacing mare with a colt at her heels setting out for Kentucky, Tennessee, or the Lord knows where. When he entered the house, the conquest of his heart was complete. It was one of those spacious farmhouses with high ridged but lowly sloping roofs built in the style handed down from the first Dutch settlers, the low projecting eaves forming a large piazza along the front capable of being closed up in bad weather. Under this were hung flails, harness, various utensils of husbandry, and nets for fishing in the neighboring river. Benches were built along the sides for summer use, and a great spinning wheel at one end and a churn at the other showed the various uses to which this important porch might be devoted. From this piazza, the wandering Ichabod entered the hall which formed the center of the mansion and the place of usual residence. Here rows of resplendent pewter ranged on a long dresser dazzled his eyes. In one corner stood a huge bag of wool ready to be spun. In another, a quantity of linsey woolsey just from the loom. Ears of corn and strings of dried apples and peaches hung in gay festoons along the walls, mingled with the god of red peppers. And a door left ajar gave him a peep into the best parlor where the claw-footed chairs and dark mahogany tables shone like mirrors. And irons with their accompanying shovels and tongs glistened from their covert of asparagus tops. Mock oranges and conch shells decorated the mantelpiece. Strings of various colored bird's eggs were suspended above it. A great ostrich egg was hung from the center of the room, and a corner cupboard, knowingly left open, displayed immense treasures of old silver and well-mended china. From the moment Ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight, the peace of his mind was at an end, and his only study was how to gain the affections of the peerless daughter of Van Tassel. In this enterprise, however, he had more real difficulties than generally fell to the lot of a knight errant of yore, <laughs> who seldom had anything but giants, enchanters, fiery dragons, and such like easily conquered adversaries to contend with, and had to make his way merely through gates of iron and brass and walls of adamant to the castle keep where the lady of his heart was confined. All which he achieved as easily as a man would carve his way to the center of a Christmas pie. (laughs) And then the lady gave him her hand as a matter of course. Ichabod, on the other hand, had to win his way to the heart of a country coquette, beset with a labyrinth of whims and caprices, which were forever presenting new difficulties and impediments. And he had to encounter a host of fearful adversaries of real flesh and blood. The numerous rustic admirers who beset every portal to her heart. 
keeping a watchful and angry eye upon each other, but ready to fly out in the common cause against any new competitor. Among these, the most formidable was a burly, roaring, roistering blade of the name of Abraham, or according to the Dutch abbreviation, Brom van Brunt, the hero of the country round, which rang with his feats of strength and hardihood. He was broad-shouldered and double-jointed, with short curly black hair and a buff but not unpleasant countenance, having a mingled air of fun and arrogance. From his Herculean frame and great powers of limb, he had received the name, the nickname, of Brom Bones, by which he was universally known. He was famed for great knowledge and skill in horsemanship, being as dexterous on horseback as a Tartar. He was foremost at all races and cockfights, and with the ascendancy which bodily strength always acquires in rustic life, was the umpire in all disputes setting his hat on one side and giving his decisions with an air and tone that admitted of no gainsay or appeal. He was always ready with either a fight or a frolic, but had more mischief than ill will in his composition. And with all his overbearing roughness, (coughs) there was a strong dash of waggish good humor at bottom. He had three or four boon companions who regarded him as their model and at the head of whom he scoured the country, attending every scene of feud or merriment for miles round. In cold weather, he was distinguished by a fur cap, surmounted with a flaunting fox's tail. And when the folks at a country gathering decried this well-known crest at a distance, whisking about among a squad of hard riders, they always stood by for a squall. Sometimes his crew would be heard dashing along past the farmhouses at midnight with whoop and halloo like a troop of dawn Cossacks. And the old dames startled out of their sleep would listen for a moment till the hurry scurry had clattered by and they exclaimed, Aye, there goes Brom Bones and his gang. The neighbors looked upon him with a mixture of awe, admiration, and goodwill, and when any madcap prank or rustic brawl occurred in the vicinity, always shook their heads and warranted Brom Bones was at the bottom of it. This rantipole hero had for some time singled out the blooming Katrina for the object of his uncouth gallantries. And though his armorous toyings were something like the gentle caresses and endearments of a bear, <laughs> yet it was whispered that she did not altogether discourage his hopes. Certain it is his advances were signals for rival candidates to retire, who felt no inclination to cross a lion in his armors, in his amours, insomuch that when his horse had seen tied to Van Tassel's paling on the Sunday night, the sure sign that his master was courting, or as it is termed, sparking within, all other suitors passed by in despair and carried the war into other quarters. 
Such was the formidable rival with whom Ichabod Crane had to contend. And considering all things, a stouter man than he would have shrunk from the competition, and a wiser man would have despaired. He had, however, a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance in his nature. He was in form and spirit like a supplejack, yielding but tough, though he bent he never broke, and though he bowed beneath the slightest pressure, yet the moment it was away, jerk, he was as erect and carried his head as high as ever. To have taken the field openly against his rival would have been madness, for he was not a man to be thwarted in his amours any more than that stormy lover Achilles. Ichabod, therefore, made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner under cover of his character of singing master. He made frequent visits at the farmhouse, not that he had anything to apprehend from the meddlesome interference of of parents, which is so often a stumbling block in the path of lovers. Balt Van Tassel was an easy, indulgent soul. He loved his daughter better than even his pipe, and like a reasonable man and excellent father, let her have her way in everything. His notable little wife, too, had enough to do to attend to her housekeeping and manage her poultry, for as she sagely observed, ducks and geese are foolish things and must be looked after, but girls can take care of themselves. Thus, while the busy dame bustled about the house or plied her spinning wheel at one end of the piazza, Honest Balt would sit smoking his evening pipe at the other, watching the achievements of a little wooden warrior who, armed with a sword in each hand, was most valiantly fighting the wind on the pinnacle of the barn. In the meantime, Ichabod would carry on his suit with the daughter by the side of the spring under the great elm or sauntering along in the twilight, that hour so favorable to the lover's eloquence. I profess not to know how women's hearts are wooed and won. To me, they have always been matters of riddle and admiration. Some seem to have but one vulnerable point or door of access, while others have a thousand avenues and may be captured in a thousand different ways. It is a great triumph of skill to gain the former, but a still greater proof of generalship to maintain possession of the latter. For man must battle his fortress at every door and window. He who wins a thousand common hearts is therefore entitled to some renown, but he who keeps undisputed sway over the heart of a coquette is indeed a hero." Certain it is this was not the case with the redoubtable Brom Bones, and from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interests of the formerly evident of the former evidently declined. His horse was no longer seen tied to the palings on Sunday nights, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the preceptor of Sleepy Hollow. Brom, who had a degree of rough chivalry in his nature, would fain have carried matters to open warfare and have settled their pretensions to the lady. 
according to the mode of the most concise and simple reasoners, the knights errant of yore by single combat. But Ichabod was too conscious of the superior might of his adversary to enter the lists against him. He had overheard a boast of bones that he would double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse. (laughs) And he was too wary to give him an opportunity. There was something extremely provoking in this obstinately pacific system. It left Brom no alternative but to draw upon the funds of rustic waggery in his disposition and to play off boorish practical jokes upon his rival. Ichabod became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders. They harried his hitherto peaceful domains, smoked out his singing school by stopping up the chimney, broke into the schoolhouse at night in spite of its formidable fastenings of white and window stakes, and turned up everything topsy-turvy so that the poor schoolmaster began to think all the witches in the country held their meetings there. But what was still more annoying, Brom took all opportunities of turning him into ridicule in presence of his mistress and had a scoundrel dog whom he taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner and introduced as a rival of Ichabod's to instruct her in psalmody. In this way, matters went on for some time without producing any material effect on the relative situations of the contending powers. On a fine autumnal afternoon, Ichabod in pensive mood sat enthroned on the lofty stool from whence he usually watched all the concerns of his little literary realm. In his hand, he swayed a fair rule, that scepter of despotic power, the birch of justice, reposed on three nails behind the throne a constant terror to evil doers while on the desk before him might be seen sundry contraband articles and prohibited weapons detected upon the persons of idle urchins such as half munched apples pop guns whirligigs fly cages and whole legions of rampant little paper gamecocks Apparently, there had been some appalling act of justice recently inflicted, for his scholars were all busily intent upon their books, or slyly whispering behind them with one eye kept upon the master. And a kind of buzzing stillness reigned throughout the schoolroom. It was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of a man in toe-cloth jacket and trousers, a round crowned fragment of a hat like the cap of Mercury and mounted on the back of a ragged, wild, half-broken colt, which he managed with a rope by way of halter. He came clattering up to the school door with an invitation to Ichabod to attend a merry-making quilting frolic to be held that evening at mine here van tassels and having delivered his message with that air of importance 
and effort at fine language which a man is apt to display on petty embassies of the kind. He dashed over the brook and was seen scampering away up the hollow, full of the importance and hurry of his mission. All was now bustle and hubbub in the late quiet schoolroom. The scholars were hurried through their lessons without stopping at trifles. Those who were nimble skipped over half with impunity. And those who were tardy had a smart application now and then in the rear to quicken their speed to help them over a tall word. Books were flung aside without being put away on the shelves. Inkstands were overturned, benches thrown down, and the whole school was turned loose an hour before the usual time, bursting forth like a legion of young imps, yelping and racketing about the green in joy at their early emancipation. The gallant Ichabod now spent at least an extra half hour at his toilet, brushing and furbishing up his best and indeed only suit of rusty black, and arranging his locks by a bit of broken looking glass that hung up in the schoolhouse that he might make his appearance before his mistress in the true style of a cavalier. He borrowed a horse from a farmer with whom he was domiciliated, a choleric old Dutchman of the name of Hans Van Ripper, and thus gallantly mounted issued forth like a knight errant in quest of adventures. But it is meet if I should, in the true spirit of romantic story, give some account of the looks and equipments of my hero and his steed. The animal he bestrode was a broken down plow horse that had outlived almost everything but its viciousness. <laughs> he was gaunt and shagged with a U neck and head like a hammer. His rusty mane and tail were tangled and knotted with burrs. One eye lost its pupil and was glaring and spectral but the other had the gleam of a genuine devil in it. Oh, still, he must have had fire and metal in his day, if we may judge from the name he bore of Gunpowder. He had, in fact, been a favorite steed of his master's, the choleric Van Ripper, who was a furious rider and had infused, very probably, some of his own spirit into the animal, for old and broken down as he looked, there was more of the lurking devil in him than any young filly in the country. Ichabod was a suitable figure for such a steed. He rode with short stirrups, which brought his knees nearly up to the pommel of the saddle. His sharp elbows stuck out like grasshoppers. He carried his whip perpendicularly in his hand like a scepter, and his horse jogged on the motion of his arms was not unlike flapping of a pair of wings. A small wool hat rested on the top of his nose, for so his scanty strip of forehead might be called. <laughs> and the skirts of his black coat fluttered out almost to the horse's tail. Such was the appearance of Ichabod and his steed as they shambled out of the gate of Hans Van Ripper. And it was altogether such an apparition as is seldom to be met with in broad daylight. It was, as I have said, a fine autumnal day. The sky was clear and serene, and nature wore that rich and golden livery 
which we always associate with the idea of abundance. The forest had put on their their sober brown and yellow, while some trees of the tenderer kind had been nipped by the frosts into brilliant dyes of orange, purple, and scarlet. Streaming files of wild ducks began to make their appearance high in the air. The bark of the squirrel might be heard from the groves of beech and hickory nuts, and the pensive whistle of the quail at intervals from the neighboring stubble field. The small birds were taking their farewell banquets. In the fullness of their revelry, they fluttered, chirping and frolicking from bush to bush and tree to tree, capricious from the very profusion and variety around them. There was the honest cock robin, the favorite game of the stripling sportsman, with its loud, careless note and the twittering blackbirds flying in sable clouds and the golden-winged woodpecker with his crimson crest, his broad black gorget and splendid plumage, and the cedar bird with its red-tipped wings and yellow-tipped tail and its little Montero cap of feathers, and the blue jay, that noisy coxcomb in his gay light blue coat and white underclothes, screaming and chattering, nodding and bobbing and bowing, and pretending to be on good terms with every songster of the grove. As Ichabod jogged slowly on his way, his eye, ever open to every symptom of culinary abundance, ranged with delight over the treasures of jolly autumn. On all sides he beheld a vast store of apples, some hanging in oppressive opulence on the trees, some gathered into baskets and barrels for the market, others heaped up in rich piles for the cider press. Farther on, he beheld great fields of Indian corn with its golden ears peeping from their leafy coverts and holding out the promise of cakes and hasty pudding and the yellow pumpkins lined beneath them, turning up their fair round bellies to the sun and giving ample prospects of the most luxurious of pies. And anon he passed the fragrant buckwheat fields, breathing the odor of the beehive, and as he beheld them, soft anticipations stole over his mind of dainty slapjacks, well-buttered and garnished with honey or triacle by the delicate little dimpled hand of Katrina Van Tassel. Thus feeding his mind with many sweet thoughts and sugared suppositions, He journeyed along the sides of a range of hills which look out among upon some of the goodliest scenes of the mighty Hudson. The sun gradually wheeled his broad disk down in the west. The wide bosom of the Tappan Zee lay motionless and glassy, excepting that here and there a gentle undulation waved and prolonged the blue shadow of the distant mountain. few amber clouds floated in the sky without a breath of air to move them. 
The horizon was of a fine golden tint, changing gradually into a pure apple green, and from that into the deep blue of the midheaven. A slanting ray lingered on the woody crests of the precipices that overhung some parts of the river, giving greater depth to the dark gray and purple of their rocky sides. A sloop was loitering in the distance, dropping slowly down with the tide, her sail hanging uselessly against the mast. And as the reflection of the sky gleamed along the still water, it seemed as if the vessel was suspended in the air. It was toward evening that Ichabod arrived at the castle of the Heer Van Tassel, which he found thronged with the pride and flower of the adjacent country. Old farmers, a spare leathern-faced race, in homespun coats and breeches, blue stockings, huge shoes, and magnificent pewter buckles, their brisk, withered little dames in close crimped calves, long-waisted short gowns, homespun petticoats with scissors and pincushions, and gay calico pockets hanging on the outside. Buxom lasses, almost as antiquated as their mothers, excepting wear a straw hat, a fine ribbon, or perhaps a white frock, gave symptoms of city innovation. The sons, in short, square, skirted coats, with rows of stupendous brass buttons, and their hair generally cued in the fashion of the times, especially if they could procure an eel skin for the purpose, it being esteemed throughout the country as a potent nourisher and strengthener of the hair. Brom Bones, however, was the hero of the scene, having come to the gathering on his favorite steed, Daredevil, a creature like himself, full of metal and mischief, and which no one but himself could manage. He was, in fact, noted for preferring vicious animals, given to all kinds of tricks which kept the rider in constant risk of his neck, for he held a tractable, well-broken horse as unworthy of a lad of spirit. Fain I would pause to drill upon the world of charms that burst upon the enraptured gaze of my hero as he entered the state parlor of Van Tassel's mansion. Not those of the bevy of buxom lasses, with their luxurious display of red and white, but the ample charms of a genuine Dutch country tea table in the sumptuous time of autumn. Such heaped up platters of cakes of various and almost indescribable kinds known only to experienced Dutch housewives. There was the doughty donut, the tender ollie cock, and the crisp and crumbling cruller, sweet cakes and short cakes, ginger cakes and honey cakes, and the whole family of cakes. And then there were apple pies and peach pies and pumpkin pies, besides slices of ham and smoked beef, and moreover delectable dishes 
of preserved plums, peaches and pears, and quinces, not to mention broiled shod and roasted chickens, together with bowls of milk and cream, all mingled higgledy-piggledy pretty much as I have enumerated them, with the motherly teapot sending up its clouds of vapor from the midst. Heaven bless the mark. I want breath and time to discuss this banquet as it deserves and am too eager to get on with my story. Happily, Ichabod Crane was not in so great a hurry as his historian, but did ample justice to every dainty. He was a kind and thankful creature whose heart dilated in proportion as his skin was filled with good cheer and whose spirits rose with eating as some men's do with drink. He could not help, too, rolling his large eyes round him as he ate and chuckling with the possibility that he might one day be lord of all this scene of almost unimaginable luxury and splendor. Then he thought how soon he had turned his back upon the old schoolhouse, snapped his fingers in the face of Hans Van Ripper and every other horrible patron, and kick any itinerant pedagogue out of doors that should dare to call him comrade. Old Baltus Van Tassel moved about among his guests with a face dilated with content and good humor, round and jolly as the harvest moon. His hospitable attentions were brief, but expressive being confined to a shake of the hand, a slap on the shoulder, a loud laugh, and a pressing invitation to fall to and help themselves. And now the sound of the music from the common room or hall summoned to the dance. The musician was an old gray-headed man who had been the itinerant orchestra of the neighborhood for more than half a century. His instrument was as old and battered as himself. The greater part of the time he scraped on two or three strings, accompanying every movement of the bow with a motion of his head, bowing almost to the ground and stamping his foot whenever a fresh couple were to start. Ichabod prided himself upon his dancing as much as upon his vocal powers. Not a limb, not a fiber about him was idle, and to have seen his loosely hung frame in full motion and clattering about the room, you would have thought St. Vitus himself, that blessed patron of the dance, was figuring before you in person. He was the admiration of all of the men who, having gathered of all sizes and ages from the farm and neighborhood, stood forming a pyramid of shining black faces at every door and window, gazing with delight at the scene, rolling their white eyeballs and showing grinning rows of white teeth from ear to ear. How could the flogger of urchins be otherwise than animated and joyous? 
The lady of his heart was his partner in the dance and smiling graciously in reply to all his amorous oglings while Brom Bones, sorely smitten with love and jealousy, sat brooding by himself in the corner. When the dance was at the end, Ichabod was attracted to a knot of the sager folks who with old Van Tassel sat smoking at one end of the piazza, gossiping over former times and drawing out long stories about the war. This neighborhood at the time of which I am speaking was one of those highly favored places which abound with chronicle and great men. The British and American line had run near it during the war. It had, therefore, been the scene of marauding infested with refugees, cowboys, and all kinds of border chivalry. Just sufficient time had elapsed to enable each storyteller to dress up his tale with a little becoming fiction. And in the indistinctness of his recollection, to make himself the hero of every exploit. There was a story of Dofu Martling, a large blue bearded Dutchman who had nearly taken a British frigate with an old iron nine pounder from a mud breastwork only that his gun burst at the sixth discharge and there was an old gentleman who shall be nameless being too rich a mine here to be lightly mentioned who in the battle of white plains being an excellent master of defense parried a musket ball with a small sword in so much that he absolute felt it whiz round the blade and glance off at the hilt in proof of which he was ready at any time to show the sword with the hilt a little bent. There were several more that had been equally great in the field, not one of whom but was persuaded that he had a considerable hand in bringing the war to a happy termination. But all these were nothing to the tales of the ghosts and apparitions, apparitions that succeeded. The neighborhood is rich in legendary treasures of the kind. Local tales and superstitions thrive best in these sheltered, long-settled retreats, but are trampled underfoot by the shifting throng that forms the population of most of our country places. Besides, there is no encouragement for ghosts in most of our villages, for they have scarcely had time to finish their first nap and turn themselves in their graves, before surviving friends have traveled away from the neighborhood so that when they turn out at night to walk their rounds they have no acquaintance left to call upon this is perhaps the reason why we are we so seldom hear of ghosts except in our long established dutch communities the immediate cause however of the prevalence of supernatural stories in these parts was doubtless owing to the vicinity of Sleepy Hollow. There was a contagion in the very air that blew from that haunted region. It breathed forth an atmosphere of dreams and fancies infecting all the land. Several of the Sleepy Hollow people were present at Van Tassel's and, as usual, were doling out their wild and wonderful legends. Many dismal tales were told about funeral trains and mourning cries and wailings heard and seen about the great tree where the unfortunate Major Andre was taken and which stood in the neighborhood. Some mention was made also of the woman in white 
that haunted the dark glen at Raven Rock and was often heard to shriek on winter nights before a storm having perished there in the snow. The chief part of the stories, however, turned upon their favorite specter of Sleepy Hollow, the Headless Horseman, who had been heard several times of late patrolling the country and, it was said, tethered his horse nightly among the graves in the churchyard. The sequestered situation of this church seems always to have made it a favorite haunt of troubled spirits. It stands on a knoll surrounded by locust trees and lofty elms from among which its decent whitewashed walls shine modestly forth like Christian purity beaming through the shades of retirement. (laughs) A gentle slope descends from it to a silver sheet of water bordered by high trees between which peeps may be caught at the blue hills of the Hudson. The look upon its grass-grown yard where the sunbeams seem to sleep so quietly, one would think there at least the dead might rest in peace. On one side of the church extends a wide woody dell along which raves a large brook among broken rocks and trunks of fallen trees. Over a deep black part of the stream not far from the church was formerly thrown a wooden bridge. The road that led to it and the bridge itself were thickly shaded by overhanging trees, which cast a gloom about it even in the daytime, but occasioned a fearful darkness at night. Such was one of the favorite haunts of the Headless Horseman and the place where he was most frequently encountered. The tale was told of Old Brower, a most heretical disbeliever in ghosts, how he met the horseman returning from his foray into Sleepy Hollow and was obliged to get up behind him, how they galloped over bush and brake, over hill and swamp, until they reached the bridge when the horseman suddenly turned into a skeleton, threw Old Brower into the brook, and sprang away over treetops with a clap of thunder. This story was immediately matched by a thrice marvelous adventure of Brom Bones, who made light of the galloping Hessian as an errant jockey. He affirmed that on returning one night from the neighboring village of Sing Sing, he had been overtaken by this midnight trooper, that he had offered to race with him for a bowl of punch, and should have won it too for Daredevil beat the goblin horse all hollow. But just as they came to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished into a flash of fire. All these tales told in that drowsy undertone with which men talk in the dark, the countenances of the listeners only now and then receiving a casual gleam from the glare of a pipe, sink deep in the mind of Ichabod. He repaid them in kind with large extracts from his invaluable author, Cotton Mather, and added many marvelous events that had taken place in his native state of Connecticut and fearful insights with which he had seen in his nightly walks about Sleepy Hollow. The revel now gradually broke up. The old farmers gathered together their families in their wagons and were heard for some time rattling along the hollow roads over distant hills. Some of the damsels mounted on pillions behind their favorite swains and their light-hearted laughter 
mingling with the clatter of hooves echoed in the silent woodlands, sounding fainter and fainter until they gradually died away. And the late scene of noise and frolic was all silent and deserted. Ichabod only lingered behind, according to the custom of country lovers, to have a tete-a-tete with the heiress, fully convinced that he was now on the high road to success. What passed at this interview I will not pretend to say, for in fact I do not know. Something, however, I fear me, must have gone wrong. For he certainly sallied forth after no very great interval, with an air quite desolate and chapfallen. Oh, these women, these women. Could that girl have been playing off any of her coquettish tricks? Was her encouragement of the poor pedagogue all a mere sham to secure her conquest of his rival? Heaven only knows, not I. Let it suffice to say Ichabod stole forth with the air of one who had been sacking a hen roost rather than a fair lady's heart. Without looking to the right or the left to notice the scene of rural wealth on which he had so often gloated. He went straight to the stable and with several hearty cuffs and kicks roused his steed most uncourteously from the comfortable quarters in which he was soundly sleeping, dreaming of mountains of corn and oats and whole valleys of Timothy and Clover. It was the very witching time of night that Ichabod, heavy-hearted and crestfallen, pursued his travels homewards along the sides of the lofty hills which rise above Tarrytown, and which he had traversed so cheerily in the afternoon. The hour was as dismal as himself. Far below him, the Tapan Zee spread its dusky and indistinct waste of waters, with here and there the tall mast of a sloop riding quietly at anchor under the, the land. In the dead hush of midnight, he could even hear the barking of the watchdog from the opposite shore of the Hudson. But it was so vague and faint as only to give an idea of his distance upon from this faithful companion of man. Now and then, too, the long-drawn crowing of a cock accidentally awakened would sound far, far off from some far house away from among the hills. But it was like a dreaming sound in his ear. No signs of life occurred near him, but occasionally the melancholy chirp of a cricket or perhaps a guttural twang of a bullfrog from a neighboring marsh, as if sleeping uncomfortably and churning suddenly in its bed. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in the afternoon now came crowding upon his recollection. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper into the sky, and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. He was, moreover, approaching the very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had been laid. In the center of the road stood an enormous tulip tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees of the neighborhood and formed a kind of landmark. Its limbs were gnarled and fantastic, 
large enough to form trunks for ordinary trees, twisting down almost to the earth and rising again into the air. It was connected with the tragical story of the unfortunate Andre who had been taken prisoner hard by and was universally known by the name of Major Andre's tree. The common people regarded it with a mixture of respect and superstition, partly out of the sympathy for the fate of its ill-starred namesake and partly from the tales of strange sights and doleful lamentations told concerning it. As Ichabod approached this fearful tree, he began to whistle. He thought his whistle was answered, but it was a blast sweeping sharply through the dry branches. As he approached a little nearer, he thought he saw something white hanging in the midst of the tree. He paused and ceased whistling, but on looking more narrowly, perceived that it was a place where the tree had been scathed by lightning and the white wood laid bare. Suddenly he heard a groan. His teeth chattered and his knees smote against the saddle. It was but the rubbing of one huge bough upon another as they swayed about by the breeze. He passed the tree in safety, but new perils lay before him. About two yards from the tree, a small brook crossed the road and ran into a marshy, thickly wooded glen known by the name of Wiley's Swamp. A few rough logs laid side by side served for a bridge over this stream. On that side of the road where the brook entered the wood, a group of oaks and chestnuts matted thick with wild grapevines threw a cavernous gloom over it. To pass this bridge was the severest trial. It was at this identical spot that the unfortunate Andre had been captured, and under the covert of those chestnuts and vines were the sturdy yeomen concealed who surprised him. This has ever since been considered a haunted stream, and fearful are the feelings of the schoolboy who has to pass it alone after dark. As he approached the stream, his heart began to thump. He summoned up, however, all his resolution, gave his horse half a score of kicks in the ribs and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge, but instead of starting forward, the perverse old animal made a lateral movement and ran broadside against the fence. Ichabod, whose fears increased with the delay, jerked the reins on the other side and kicked lustily with the contrary foot, and it was all in vain. His steed started, it is true, but it was only to plunge to the opposite side of the road into a thicket of brambles and alder bushes. Oh, the schoolmaster now bestowed both whip and heel upon the starveling ribs of old gunpowder, who dashed forward, snuffling and snorting, but coming to a stand just by the bridge with a suddenness that had nearly sent his rider sprawling out over his head. Just at this moment, a plashy tramp by the side of the bridge caught the sensitive ear of Ichabod. In the dark shadow of the grove on the margin of the brook, he beheld something huge, misshapen and towering. It stirred not, but seemed gathered up in the gloom like some gigantic monster ready to spring forth upon the traveler. The hair of the affrighted pedagogue rose upon his head with terror. What was to be done? To turn and fly was now too late, and besides, what chance was there of escaping ghost or goblin, if such it was, which could ride upon the wings of the wind? 
Summoning up, therefore, a show of courage, he demanded in stammering accents, Who who, who are you? He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice. Oh, but still there was no answer. Once more he cudgeled the sides of the inflexible gunpowder and shutting his eyes, broke forth with involuntary fervor into a psalm tune. (laughs) Oh, just then the shadowy object of alarm put itself in motion and with a scramble and a bound stood at once in the middle of the road. Through the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of the unknown might now in some degree be ascertained. He appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. He made no offer of molestation or sociability, but kept aloof on one side of the road, jogging along the blind side of old gunpowder who had now got over his fright and waywardness. Ichabod, who had no relish for this strange midnight companion, and bethought himself of the adventure of Brom Bones with a galloping Hessian, now quickened his steed in hopes of leaving him behind. The stranger, however, quickened his horse to an equal pace. Ichabod pulled up and fell into a walk, thinking to lag behind. The other did the same. His heart began to sink within him. He endeavored to resume his psalm tune, but his parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not utter a stave. There was something in the moody and dogged silence of this pertinacious companion that was mysterious and appalling. It was soon fearfully accounted for. On mounting a rising ground, which brought the figure of his fellow traveler in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless. But his horror was still more increasing on observing that the head which should have rested on his shoulders was carried before him on the pommel of a saddle. His terror rose to desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping by a sudden movement to give his companion the slip. But the specter started full jump with him. Away then they dashed through thick and thin, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lank body away over his horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. They had now reached the road which turns off to Sleepy Hollow, but Gunpowder, who seemed possessed with a demon, instead of keeping up it made an opposite turn and plunged headlong downhill to the left. This road leads through a sandy hollow shaded by trees for about a quarter of a mile where it crosses a bridge famous in goblin stories. And just beyond swells the green knoll on which stands the whitewashed church. As yet the panic of the steed had given his unskillful rider an apparent advantage in the chase, but just as he got halfway through the hollow, The girths of the saddle gave way, and he felt it slipping from under him. He seized it by the pommel and endeavored to hold it firm, but in vain, and had just time to save himself by clasping old gunpowder around the neck when the saddle fell to the earth, and he heard it trampled underfoot by his pursuer. For a moment, 
The terror of Hans Van Ripper's wrath passed across his mind, for it was his Sunday saddle. But this was no time for petty fears. The goblin was hard on his haunches, and unskillful rider that he was, he had much ado to maintain his seat, sometimes slipping on one side, sometimes on another, and sometimes jolted the high ridge of the horse's backbone with a violence that he verily feared and would cleave him asunder. An opening in the trees now cheered him with the hopes of the church bridge that was at hand. The wavering reflection of a silver star in the bosom of the brook told him that he was not mistaken. He saw the walls of the church dimly glaring out of the trees beyond. He recollected the place where Brom Bones' ghostly competitor had disappeared. If I could reach, but reach that bridge, thought Ichabod, I am safe. Just then he heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him. And he even fancied that he felt his hot breath, another convulsive kick in the ribs, and old gunpowder sprang upon that bridge. He thundered over the resounding planks. He gained the opposite side. And now Ichabod cast a look behind to see if his pursuer should vanish. According to rule in a flash of fire and brimstone. Just then he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups and in the very act of hurling his head at him, Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but too late it encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust and gunpowder. The black steed and the goblin rider passed by like a whirlwind. The next morning, the old horse was found without a saddle and with the bridle under his feet, soberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. Ichabod did not make his appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came, but no Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse and strolled idly about the banks of the brook, but no schoolmaster. Hans Van Ripper now began to feel some uneasiness about the fate of poor Ichabod and his saddle. An inquiry was set on foot, and after diligent investigation, they came upon his traces. In one part of the road leading to the church was found the saddle trampled in the dirt, the tracks of horses' hooves deeply dented in the road, and evidently at furious speed were traced to the bridge, beyond which on the bank of a broad part of the brook, where the water ran deep and black, was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod, and close beside it, a shattered pumpkin. The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. Hans Van Ripper, as executor of his estate, examined the bundle which contained all his worldly effects. They consisted of two shirts and a half, two stocks for the neck, a pair or two of worsted stockings, an old pair of corduroy small clothes, a rusty razor, a book of psalm tunes full of dog's ears, and a broken pitch pipe. As to the books and furniture of the schoolhouse, they belonged to the community, excepting Cotton Mather's history of witchcraft, 
A New England Almanac, and A Book of Dreams and Fortune Telling, in which last was a sheet of fool's cap much scribbled and blotted in several fruitless attempts to make a copy of verses in honor of the heiress of Van Tassel. These magic books and the poetic scrawl were forthwith consigned to the flames by Hans Van Ripper, who from that time forward determined to send his children no more to school, observing that he never knew any good come of this same reading and writing. Whatever money the schoolmaster possessed, and he had received his quarter's pay but a day or two before, he must have had about his person at the time of his disappearance. The mysterious event caused much speculation at the church on the following Sunday. Knots of gazers and gossips were collected in the churchyard, at the bridge and at the spot where the hat and pumpkin had been found. The stories of Brower, of Bones, and a whole budget of others were called to mind. And when they had diligently considered them all, they compared them with the symptoms of the present case. They shook their heads and came to the conclusion that Ichabod had been carried off by the galloping Hessian. As he was a bachelor and in nobody's debt, Nobody troubled his head any more about him. The school was removed to a different quarter of the hollow, and another pedagogue reigned in his stead. It is true. An old farmer who had been down to New York on a visit several years after, and from whom this account of the ghostly adventure was received, brought home the intelligence that Ichabod Crane was still alive that he had left the neighborhood partly through fear of the goblin and Hans Van Ripper, and partly in mortification at having been suddenly dismissed by the heiress, that he had changed his quarters to a distant part of the country, had kept school and studied law at the same time, had been admitted to the bar, turned politician, electioneered, written for the newspapers, and finally had been made a justice of the ten-pound court. Brom Bones, too, who shortly after his rival's disappearance conducted the blooming Katrina in triumph to the altar, was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related, and always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. The old country wives, however, <clears throat> who are the best judges of these matters, maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means. And it is a favorite story often told about the neighborhood round the winter evening fire. The bridge became more than ever an object of superstitious awe. And that may be the reason why the road has been altered of late years so as to approach the church by the border of the mill pond. The schoolhouse being deserted soon fell to decay and was reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate pedagogue and the plowboy loitering homeward of a still summer evening. Has often fancied his voice at a distance, 
chanting a melancholy psalm tune among the tranquil solitudes of Sleepy Hollow. Postscript found in the handwriting of Mr. Knickerbocker. The preceding tale is almost given in the precise words in which I heard it related at a corporation meeting at the ancient city of Manhattos, which <clears throat> were present many of its sagest and most illustrious bergers. The narrator was a pleasant, shabby, gentlemanly old fellow in salt and pepper clothes with a sadly humorous face and one whom I strongly suspected of being poor. He made such efforts to be entertaining. When his story was concluded, there was much laughter and approbation, particularly from two or three deputy aldermen <clears throat> who had been asleep the greater part of the time. There was, however, one tall, dry-looking old gentleman with beetling eyebrows who maintained a grave and rather severe face throughout, now and then folding his arms, inclining his head, and looking down upon the floor as if turning a doubt over in his mind. He was one of your wary men who never laugh but upon good grounds, when they have reason and law on their side. When the mirth of the rest of the company had subsided and silence was restored, he leaned one arm on the elbow of the chair and sticking the other akimbo, demanded with a slight but exceedingly sage motion of the head and contraction of the brow what was the moral of the story and what it went to prove. The storyteller, who was just putting a glass of wine to his lips as a refreshment after his toils, paused for a moment, looked at his inquirer with an air of infinite deference and lowering the glass slowly to the table, observed that the story was intended most logically to prove that there is no situation in life but has its advantages and pleasures provided we will but take a joke as we find it. That therefore, that he runs races with goblin troopers is likely to have a rough riding of it. Ergo, for a country schoolmaster to be refused the hand of a Dutch heiress is a certain step to high preferment in the state. The cautious old gentleman knit his brows tenfold closer after this explanation, being sorely puzzled by the ratiocination of the syllogism, while methought the one in pepper and salt eyed him with something of a triumphant leer. <clears throat> At length he observed that all this was very well, but still he thought the story a little on the extravagant. There were one or two points on which he had his doubts. Faith, sir, replied the storyteller, as to that matter, I don't believe one half of it myself. <laughs> Okay, the end. <laughs> I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode of Metaphysical Soul Speak, the podcast. I will be back tomorrow with all unique and original programming, just like always. But until then, I'm signing off with peace and joy and a happy Halloween. <laughs> Till then, peace.
Hey guys, I've been making episodes of Metaphysical Soul Speak, the podcast, for a while now, and many of you have contacted me wondering just how you can support me and my podcast. Well, I have two solutions for this question. Number one is to become a listener supporter in which you go to the Anchor app, locate my channel, and sign up anywhere from 99 cents to $9.99 monthly, and you can stop anytime. Or number two is to make a one-time donation of any amount via Zelle, bank to bank, or through PayPal using my email, mermaidgirl888 at gmail.com, also located in the show description. Now with this option, you aren't uh, obligated monthly in any way, and you're also not limited. Thank you all so much in advance for your support. Let's keep metaphysical soul speak on the air and onward and upward to the fifth dimension together, guys. Thank you.